1: So sadly, podcasting is not the most visual medium. Uh, so for those of those of you who are listening, which is all of you, I will just describe the kind of amazing profusion of microphones around Quinta. It's like a, it's like one of those uh, you know, old timey recordings or videos of someone testifying before Congress, and there are seventeen microphones in front of them. Quinta, what, why the embarrassment of microphones? Can you just not be contained?
0: I was actually thinking of the of the meme where. There's one guy standing there and he has like a ton of microphones on his face and a, another person standing next to him looking sad with no microphones. Um, yeah, so we we are attempting an experiment. We are uh, attempting to improve our our sound quality here at Lawfare HQ at the Brookings Institution. Uh, so I, I have a, a hardwired mic in front of me and I also have a USB mic because I don't trust technology and I wanted to make sure that I had a backup in case anything terrible happened. Thus, the two microphones. It looks
1: very hardcore. That's all I want to say. It Thank looks you. cool. Thank you. Sadly, sadly, sadly on the recording will not be twice as much Quinta as the rest of us, which is what I know the audience wants.
2: <laughs> it's really sought after. Exactly. And we're still going to sound like complete garbage, Alan, because <laughs> so we're too lazy to go to the office.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm actually, I'm I'm recording just like straight into like a moose's head. I don't even have a microphone. That's how we do it in Minnesota.
0: But the, the moose is engineered using Linux. <laughs>
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Rational Security. I am your co-host, Scott R. Anderson, and I am here with my two other regular co-hosts reunited once again, Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And Alan Rosenstein. Hello, hello. It is so great to be back in this virtual chamber with you all. Although I am missing the opportunity to be in person with you, Quinta, sadly, in our new in situ recording studio, um, which we may yet try out next week, in which case we will, we will, Slowly exclude Alan in his virtual Minnesota chapter.
0: We're going to put you on one of those robots where there's like a computer screen and the robot has little wheels and it goes around and it'll just be your face.
2: Or we'll, or we'll like, have an intern be a uh, Arrested Development style surrogate for Alan where he just wears <laughs> Alan, wears an iPad <laughs> hanging around his neck. Uh, I think that may be the plan. If we get enough interns, apply today, guys. Wow. Applications are open for law fair interns. This suddenly became a Black Mirror episode. Not for the first time, let's be honest Well, I am excited to be back here with both of you For what I at least am calling the signed Pol Pot rookie card edition uh, this week Because we have a lot of cool, interesting events happening in the news By which I mean depressing (laughs) and a little disturbing Uh, Some of which involve some strange collections by some strange rich people Which is one of my favorite topics How rich people spend all their money and the weird ways they choose to do so Although that's a bit of a tangent, but we may get to it. Our first topic for this week is tricky leaks. A tranche of what appears to be genuine classified Defense Department documents has shown up on the Internet after being leaked to a conservative Discord channel and having spread through a number of online fora for discussing video games and other such matters. Who seems to be responsible and how strategically significant are these leaks? Topic two, save paradise, put me up in a parking lot. A ProPublica investigation has revealed that Justice Clarence Thomas, who once famously said that he felt more comfortable hanging out in a Walmart parking lot than at the beach, this is an actual quote, has been accepting extravagant tropical vacations from Republican megadonor Harlan Crow for decades. What does this tell us about ethics on the Supreme Court? Is there a legal solution? And topic three, Lost in the fracas That's F-R-A-U-K-U-S. For those who may not be reading along with the show notes at
0: home. That worked better written down.
2: I officially made my most favorite AUKUS joke after contemplating it for months on Twitter earlier today, which I encourage people to look at. It's entirely visual, so I'm not going to (laughs) try and describe it. Only 1% of you will get it, but a few of you will, and you will agree with me. It's phenomenal. But check out my Twitter account for that. French President Emmanuel Macron stirred up controversy this week after suggesting that Europe should strive for greater independence from U.S. policy in the Pacific, particularly surrounding Taiwan, following his meetings with Chinese President Xi Jinping. This comes just weeks after Australia, the United Kingdom, and the United States unveiled the culmination of the regional 2021 AUKUS submarine deal, which continues to be a sore spot for relations with Macron and other French leaders. How significant are Macron's statements? What are their ramifications for Taiwan and others in the Pacific? To get to our first topic, let me hand it over to me, (laughs) who will be introducing our first topic on the question of tricky leaks. I love it, Scott. I love it when you
1: introduce the first topic, because there's always a Mario slash Luigi voice to me to introduce to it. To me, it's delightful.
2: Mario. <laughs> yeah, I desperately try and avoid it immediately, but sometimes when we juggle up topics, it's just unavoidable, because our first topic tends to be the one that gets the most time, and this seemed to be the one that warrants the most discussion this week. Um, because we have seen another pretty major leak development, something that I think folks who do national security and have done it for the last 10 or 15 years, 20 years, have gotten more and more used to since the WikiLeaks leaks, uh, and then you know subsequent to the Edward Snowden leaks, we really have gotten used to these kind of big revelatory drops of tranches of documents. And we're living through another one of those as of this past week. Not quite the same scale, not clearly the same substantive significance, um, but nonetheless, something that's gotten a lot of media attention and warrant serious discussion. And that is a Group of about 100 is most estimates, although I haven't seen them collected in any single place, nor have I or presumably any of you had the opportunity to review more than like a handful of them that have shown up in images online of classified documents. So far, they also be originating with the Defense Department, at least the ones I've seen referenced that have shown up initially on a series of online forums on 4chan. People with Bellingcat, uh, the phenomenal uh, open investigations group, has tracked them back to what they believe was a forum um, that's mostly inhabited by people who are interested in kind of conservative politics issues, but not really so much political, just kind of a general conservative vibe, uh, it seems like. Uh, There's a lot of talk about um, some racially tinged comments being quite common, um, expression of interest in a variety of sort of eclectic bunch of topics. This forum has since been decommissioned, but these images of these classified documents then drifted to a bunch of online forum. Uh, And we're still trying to figure out exactly what their provenance is. But it's pretty notable. We've seen a lot of revelations about Egypt trying to secretly sell missiles to Russia, about potential Israeli intelligence officials' involvement in protests against uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu's proposed reforms there. And perhaps more fundamentally, it's a bit of an embarrassment for the US government as it shows some of the intelligence activities it is pursuing, the information it's collecting, including about a number of allies. And its sense of a number of issues primarily related to the Ukraine conflict, which is what most of the documents center around. Alan, let me hand it over to you first. You know, how do you think we should, as national security policy observers, be thinking about these sorts of leak incidents? Is the threat primarily about the substance of the documents themselves? Is it about the type of leak, the fact of the leak? Is that it's self-damaging? And what does it tell us about the person's motivations here? What do we know about them? Or might we be able to you know, smartly speculate, if that's possible, about what may have driven them to pursue this sort of leak in these particular forums? Well, I, I prefer to speculate.
1: Wildly and irrationally, rather than smartly. I thought that was the whole point of, of rational security, Scott. Don't that, don't don't make me don't make me speculate responsibly. That's for the, the Lawfare podcast. Uh, and speaking of the Lawfare podcast, I mean, if you're interested in this topic, you should 100 listen to uh, the podcast episode that came out on Wednesday, which, if you're listening to this, will be yesterday, where uh, Ben Wittes uh, talks with uh, Thomas Reid, who's a professor at SCIS uh, uh, in DC, and uh, Arik Toller, who um, is the director of research and training at Bellingcat, which is a sort of cybersecurity. Intelligence firm that did a lot of reporting on this issue, and it's a fascinating, fascinating conversation that gets very deep into the into the weeds here. Highly, highly recommend it. You know, a, a, as to what the harms of this, I mean, I think the answer is we just don't know yet because we don't know the full scope of the materials, we don't know exactly how they were leaked, we don't know, uh, in particular, um, you know, whether the materials contained information about sources and methods. It seems like they probably don't, given that they seem to be at a fairly kind of high analytical level. But of course, that doesn't Mean that they're not damaging because, you know, if you're a foreign intelligence agency, the first thing you're going to do, um, having gotten your hands on these documents, is to scrutinize them with a magnifying glass and try to back out from any um, analytical conclusions, you know, what that might say about the US's intelligence capabilities, whether they're signals intelligence or potentially more concerningly, uh, human intelligence. And how you might want to react, and and so you know, look, and any any leak of this high level intelligence information is is bad. You know, specifically how bad we won't know for a while, and probably we won't know ever. Um, at least those of us who are uh, not within the intelligence community itself. You know, a- a- as to what it says about the uh, intelligence community's ability to keep documents secret, um, not good you know, I I will say I I do have some, I don't want to say, I'm not sure sympathy is the the right word here, but, you know, I I do think that it is impossible to underestimate or is impossible to overestimate. I always get those confused. It is uh, very difficult, in other words, to secure classified information. Part of that is because, and this is, I think, well-known and well-appreciated, including from the intelligence community itself, America overclassifies way too many things. And that uh, is bad not just from a transparency and democracy perspective but it also means that what it means for something to be top secret for example it kind of devalues that uh, and it makes it impossible to really hold the crown jewels um, as tightly as as you would want to so that when um stuff that really does need to be kept very secret like this document like these documents when that stuff comes up you know your infrastructure is is not set up for it but honestly even if we were to rationalize our Classification system, you know, given how large the bureaucracy is, given how digitized everything is, given how unbelievably difficult it is to kind of cover your your um, attack surface, as they say, either from a technological perspective or just from a person perspective, and I want to come back to that in a second. It's just it's incredibly hard, right? And and so look, I, I'm not. I don't want to give anyone a pass here. Like I hope there's a lot of really mean ig reports uh that are you know written about this and and changes are made and if people did did were incompetent they should be fired all that sort of stuff i just do think we have to be realistic that we are just i don't think we're ever going to get to a point where there's none of this and the question is just trying to do as well as we can now what i think is uh potentially very concerning here is like You know, it it would be bad if these were hacked documents, but I think it'd be almost better if they were in a certain way, because like we could at least in principle try to deal with that. What appears to be the case here, and this is where the story gets profoundly, like truly strange, is this does not appear to be a foreign intelligence operation. This appears to be some person, we don't know the identity, who somehow got access to these documents and then decided to post them on a Discord server which is a kind of slack that's often used by computer game enthusiasts to impress his friends, like, but not for any particular reason, which is, again, amazing because it's just so bizarre. But it also raises real questions about, like, what are the psychological profiles of the sorts of people we are giving this information to, because um to call this an error of judgment is um well, this person's going to go to jail, so it's a pretty pretty big error of judgment, um but it just suggests that like there's just something deeply wrong with either how we're training people about classified information or who we're giving it to, because this is by far the stupidest way i think I, I think i'm I feel confident saying this is definitely the dumbest way that a classified information leak could possibly have happened.
0: Yeah, I will I will second the shout out to uh, today's Lawfare podcast, which I think was super, super informative. In terms of understanding the leak, what I have been thinking about is a tweet from um, Eric Toller's cat colleague, Elliot Higgins, who tweeted, um, I'll just read the tweet. The problem that serious people have when talking and thinking about a situation like this is that they can't conceive how incredibly dumb the internet can be because they were too busy getting educated and working on their careers instead of spending their time on internet comedy forums. And I think this is absolutely right. Like when, when this first happened, there were a lot of conversations, um, including, know, among the Lawfare team about, is this some kind of operation by Russian intelligence, right? Like, is this, you know, was it planted on a Discord server so that it could go to 4chan and, you know, be seeded throughout the the media ecosystem with, with disinformation? And it turns out that it was just an idiot who was posting this on a Discord server for, like, 30 people. And then uh, another person, uh, who Eric Toller is identified as a, a teenager, posted it to another Discord server for Minecraft, which just makes it even better, because he thought that the images were fakes. The whole thing is just mind-bogglingly stupid.
1: Yeah, I, I just want to say... Um... So I mean, those of you who have been listening to Ratzik for a while are very familiar with what I'm going to call the uh, the Jurassic lo- Jurassic's Law, which is that when talking about Trump, the stupidest answer is always the actual explanation. I- I'd like I, to. Im- I can't.
0: I can't take credit for that. Actually, that's uh, Trump. Trump's Razor comes from uh, the Talking Points Media. Uh, Josh Marshall. Uh,
1: all right. Fair. Fair. Fair, fair enough. I- I'm still going to call the ju- Jurassic's Law because I like it so much, and it allows me to then coin um, what I'm going to call immodestly Rosenstein's Lemma, uh, which is that. That apparently Trump's razor applies to intelligence leaks as well. like this is the dumbest possible thing, and, and the reason this is important just to of be clear is it matters enormously if this is a random disgruntled or not even disgruntled, just doofy person in the, in the intelligence community or a Russian influence operation. And what makes it so hard to not believe it's a Russian influence operation is that we're expected to believe that this person has ruined their lives has just ruined their lives and is going to go to jail because he wanted a flex in a Discord server. And what's crazy about it is that, that it is 100% psychologically plausible and it is very difficult to contort your brain to accept that for exactly the reason Quinta pointed out with that marvelous uh, marvelous tweet about just how dumb the internet is.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's also, you know, while we're on the topic of just stupidity, the the. If you look at the images that were leaked, some of which you can find online, I would not suggest that you go find them, but I I did come across them while reading about this initially. The, The images are photographs. They're photographs of documents. And because they're photographs, in some of them... It's not cropped perfectly. So you can see like stuff that's behind the photograph. Um, So I'm not I can't recall precisely what it is. But, you know, if you are, say, the FBI, and you were looking for the person who posted this material, one thing you might do is look at that photograph and say, can I use anything that's like scattered on the table behind this to track this down? I mean, so I... I looked at those photos and said like oh like this this person is completely screwed right like the bureau the bureau is going to be at their door in a week if not sooner they're going to jail because if you were going to do it like they didn't cover their tracks at all it's astonishing
1: To be honest, I'm quite surprised that the the guy hasn't been arrested yet. This does not strike me as like a particularly difficult technical problem. I mean, we know, you know, presumably you can subpoena Discord for a bunch of IP addresses and subscriber information. I mean, you don't even need a a warrant or a particular amount of process for that under the Stored Communications Act, right?
0: So one one thing that I think is worth flagging, and I don't know how Discord stores data, which I think goes directly to this, but the so there's there's kind of there are a number of servers here, that Discord servers that are at issue. One, I think the original server was deleted. And uh the people who deleted it posted, I believe, on Twitter that they were doing so because they were worried about getting in trouble. So if you're looking for an obstruction of justice charge. That's a great way to rack one up. Don't do that and don't post on Twitter about it. Oh my god, get a lawyer. Um, but I don't I don't know if Discord holds on to data after it's deleted that may create additional difficulties.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't want to dwell or maybe express Overly amounts of sympathy for the people involved in this who've done something very stupid and damaging to a lot of people, and these leaks are damaging. Like people need to understand this. I remember this being this endless debate after WikiLeaks, where a lot of people asking, "Oh, well, like how damaging is this really? How much does this really matter? U.S. policy? Can you point to one person being killed?" And and you know, I will say I don't think this is nearly the scale or substantive significance of the WikiLeaks uh, release. But these sorts of things do have real consequences in the real world, and often for. People who are not, you know, the United States government, it's often for people really to talk to the United States governments like intelligence contacts in this case. In other cases, it might be, you know, human rights advocates or people who are interested in engaging the United States on an issue set that their host government has tensions with. Um, We really shouldn't miss that. That said, the story is also going to be kind of a sad story, I suspect, because. You know, what we saw happen over the pandemic is we saw discords and other sort of forms pop up as like friend groups and family groups are a way for people to keep together. This is a, from the description we've got, it's a 20 person server of relatively close to people sharing kind of weird, annoying interests, including racist memes and orthodox Christianity and a YouTuber who specializes in like, you know, surplus Russian military equipment and how badass it is regardless. But yeah, like, it's
0: like, it's like a WhatsApp group. It's a chat for your friends. Of,
2: of real ding-dongs. I mean, yeah, one of whom is a teenager who just probably got one of his friends or family members put in prison for the rest of like, not for the rest of his life, but for a number of years. And probably many of the rest are now going to face criminal charges for obstruction because they're trying to cover their tracks. It's not, you know, it, prosecuting them is 100% the right thing to do. And it is so phenomenally stupid for people who have done this. But, uh, you know, the human cost is real. It's like, I don't know, it's it's a, a bummer to see on kind of on both sides. To go back to your original framing question, Alan- I do think it's worth thinking a little bit about like what the significance of the fact they're able to do this is. Cause it's it doesn't show right fundamentally that the United States is is hackable or accessible if this is in fact what it appears to be. This is some random dumbass who posted pictures online, right? What it shows is that it's just a little sloppy uh, and that the United States is willing to share information like this with dumbasses who are willing to do this. And and this is like an endemic problem. It's not just about overclassification, it is also about the kind of over access for the stuff that is classified and the failure to distinguish. We've both overclassified too much information to the point that we have to let a ton of people into our classified system, to be able to do day to day work, including People who evolved with fairly like quotidian tasks, right? Like people who are assistants, specials, and like processing this document. In this case, at least one person who looked at some of these images speculated, though I haven't seen them, so I don't know how, how much this makes sense, that a subset of them at least were folded up, printed out handouts that somebody walked out of a DOD briefing on uh, and appeared to take pictures of. Why are you handing out print copies of this stuff? It's just it's thing, the sort of thing that does still happen in government. You know, I still saw it happen in government when I was there. You probably did too, Alan. Like, but it's silly. It's one of these practices we really need to move away from. Um, and so this will be a little bit of embarrassment. Do I think this will really fundamentally change intelligence relationships? No, not with people we share intelligence with because these things are kind of baked into the equation, although they will hopefully use it as an opportunity to rightfully point out the United States is sloppy about some of this stuff and should get better. I do think it may have consequences for intelligence collection efforts in certain cases, like Egypt, where it appears we have certain contacts in the Ministry of Defense that knew about the secret missile program. Probably a small universe of people there who could divulge that sort of information. Although maybe it's from Sigint or something else. Same with the Russian military. There may be some compromises there. Although most of what we're hearing described is at a fairly high level, as opposed to like sources and methods. So, so there may be some protection from that. But you know, I I really think in some ways, this is not going to be a major incident coming out of this. But it does point to just some fundamental vulnerabilities that are still in our system, despite much more serious leaks having happened multiple times in the last few years.
0: So I have a question about this, actually. So I am very sympathetic to the overclassification. I mean, obviously, the US government massively overclassifies everything. um, And that leads to no end of problems. In this case, though. Tell tell me if I'm wrong about this, saying that part of the reason this is a problem is that there's systematic overclassification and therefore an enormous amount of people are read into things that, you know, such that you just need one ding dong to be an idiot and post it on Discord for this to happen. Isn't that just saying that this material shouldn't have been classified in the first place? Like if you're saying that less material should be classified, then... It, imagine a world where this like few, less material is classified, so fewer people have access to it, but then that maybe this material wouldn't have been classified in the first place, so releasing it wouldn't cause a classification problem. What am I missing?
2: So it's two different Venn diagrams. You have an overclassification universe where we classify way too much stuff, but then because so much stuff is classified... We to have people actually work with that information. We have to bring a ton of people into that system who actually need it to do their jobs, including relatively junior people. Now, that means there is information that is wildly overclassified, but it's not distinguished from the information that actually should be classified. That we all agree. That's how I would frame the problem. It's more complicated than that because there's a bunch of subclassifications and ways they're abused. And frankly, there's very, very big difference across different agencies about how these things are handled. All of them have their own idiosyncrasies, right? But the fundamental issue is I think a lot of this stuff probably is totally properly classified, but it's mixed in with a bunch of stuff that doesn't need to be. Um, I mean, certainly a lot of this information about like the state of the Russian military lines up with public comments the Fed Department has been making. So it's not a surprise at all. So like there's stuff mixed in here, but to because we classify so much, we had to bring in, you know, a lot of junior people to be able to have a staff meeting about this stuff. You had to give everyone a a handout with top secret information on it. That's a wild way to handle what are supposed to be your nation's highest secrets, at least in my mind.
0: One aspect of this that I do think is interesting is that unlike WikiLeaks or the Snowden disclosures, we have not seen the howls of protest from U.S. allies that the U.S. is spying on them. Um, And there is information here that indicates that the U.S. is collecting intelligence about U.S. allies. But people have generally been pretty quiet and compared to, you know, post-Snowden when that was like a whole big thing. Um, Right. So I'm sort of curious if either of you have any thoughts about why that is. Is it just that. The Snowden leaks happen. Everyone kind of got it out of their system. You know, we're all adults here and everyone knows that we spy on each other. Is it because the war in Ukraine is such that that kind of changes the dynamics in wartime versus peacetime about what you throw a tantrum about and what you don't? Am I just reading too much into this? What do you make of it? Well, I mean, I,
1: I, I do think people got a lot of it out of their system after Snowden. And and I do think that, you know, after Snowden, it got very embarrassing for a lot of countries, especially European countries, where sort of one part of the governments, especially on the European level, were sort of screaming bloody murder. And, and and then, like, it very quickly became clear that the actual national government intelligence agencies were spying, like, much more aggressively than the U.S. does. And, and so I think that process where there was a lot of like, egg on people's faces just now leads people to be a little more circumspect. About freaking out. I think that coupled with the fact that these disclosures do not disclose, I think like anything particularly interesting or new um, about American spying does also contribute, as you pointed out, Quint, to the like, well, we're all just doing this to each other. And like, it's not that interesting what the Americans did. So I think that's that's definitely part of it.
2: Well, and I think it's really is a kind of different type of leak from the ones that have triggered such broad reactions. In the WikiLeaks case, it was just a huge tranche of information, all actually like a lower level of classification than the stuff. I think the high secret was the highest level of classified information released in the WikiLeaks tranche, as I recall, without meaning that Chelsea Manning originating WikiLeaks, not other stuff WikiLeaks may have posted. Uh, but it was a huge, huge volume. So it just covered a huge range of relationships and just seemed so wildly responsible for similar reasons because a fairly junior person who was wrestling with depression and other mental health issues uh, in an to play post was like had access to this whole universe and was able to just copy it as easily as they did and hand it over, right? Then you had this note in leaks and the problem there is that they disclosed a underlying program that had people spying on European citizens, right? And private citizens overseas, like a much bigger policy issue that you had to have a kind of nuclear response to, particularly Europeans who care a lot about privacy and their voters and nationals care a lot about privacy. Here, it seems like we're mostly talking about information collected about foreign governments and their foreign policy, which is kind of like what you're supposed to be spying about, not necessarily your allies, but like at least it's legit subject matter for spying. I doesn't seem to get into sources and methods that specifically, although maybe I'm wrong because we haven't seen these things. So like if they're scooping this up through a, you know, massive skimming of foreign phone calls, it's not revealed from this. And so that issue isn't at play here. And perhaps more fundamentally, most of the tidbits we've heard from foreign governments are embarrassing for those foreign governments. It's them in various ways, like waffling and wavering a little bit on their commitment to the Ukraine effort. And I think it's embarrassing for them to bring attention to it. That said, we know the South Koreans have hauled in um, U.S. intelligence officials to have conversations about this or are going to. I can't remember whether it's happened or not yet, according to reports. I'm sure we're going to see Awkward meetings with Egyptians, although probably more awkward for the Egyptians <laughs> than the Americans in this case. Um, the Israelis, I'm definitely gonna have some very frank conversations with the Israelis, although they are in such domestic political turmoil around this set of issues. It's gonna be I'm not I don't know if we know exactly how that will play out. We'll see a lot of conversations, but they'll be kind of back channeled opposed to public, because there's not the same sort of public rights equity that we saw in the Snowden case or the same scales we saw in the Manning WikiLeaks case. That'd be my guess. So from from one error of judgment to
1: another error of judgment. Let's talk about Clarence Thomas's globe-trotting vacations. So yeah, it turns out that Justice Thomas has been having some some fun summer vacations, uh, courtesy of Republican mega donor uh, Harlan Crow. Uh, it's been going on for about two decades, and we should just be clear, right? What is alleged is is not that there's any bribery or that there's anything like uh, paying for. Uh, information or outcomes or anything of that nature. The problem, of course, is that judges have a responsibility not just to be impartial, but to present an air of impartiality, uh, to err on the side of impartiality. And uh, it's not a great look when you are being sort of truly lavishly entertained by a influential donor of a major political party um, and you don't disclose that information, uh, which uh, Thomas uh, has not done. Um, I think, you know, that's bad enough. I think it also is not very helpful that this is also Justice Thomas we're talking about. I mean, we've talked in the past uh, about the entanglements that uh, his wife Ginny Thomas has had uh, within not just the Republican Party, but within its kind of more Radical fringes, and um, that this is not just kind of generically or atmospherically bad for justice Thomas's appearance of impartiality, but that Justice Thomas has arguably not gone far enough to recuse himself um, from decisions that you know might potentially affect uh, his wife I'm talking about you know uh, rulings on uh, subpoenas uh, of of the uh, um, January sixth committee so the the I think overall impression you get is of a justice who you know, likes this person who has a good friendship, uh, who really enjoys these trips, all of which are completely fine, right? There's nothing wrong with taking fun trips, but probably should have known that um, he should have disclosed it and and did not. Now, you know, one thing I thought was interesting um, about this case was that Justice Thomas actually put out a statement uh, after the reporting about this came out, which was, I think, actually very conciliatory. It was it was not really a particularly strong Defense of his behavior. I mean, he argued that you know he was not required to disclose this uh, information um, because of a particular interpretation of the ethics rules. Um, I think because the gifts came from a person, not a company, uh, and that uh, the disclosure guidelines have changed, and that he would you know work with the Supreme Court Council to uh, you know rectify anything going forward. We, you know, and again, right? I mean, I'm I'm reading between the lines. I'm curious what you think. I I thought that was. For someone like Justice Thomas, who I, I think is sort of fairly pugnacious in his uh, views, generally, I thought that was a um, basically a tacit admission that this was pretty bad judgment on his part. I think, again, if you read, read between the lines, so I don't know. Let me let me start with uh, with you, Scott. How how big of a deal do you think is this sort of scandal? And let's start with sort of the merits before we get to the to the to the broader politics.
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a fair question. Um, you know, I do think it's a big deal. It's not entirely unexpected to some extent. I think the scale of it is what's really shocking people, not the fact that something like this is happening, right? These are ethical guidelines that have been on the books. I have think in one form or another from the 1970s in terms of disclosure obligations implemented by the court and other agencies is kind of like through a series of regs that have changed over the years. But the fundamental obligation, I think, dates back that far, if I recall correctly. But there's no enforcement mechanism for it. And they often have been hewed kind of broadly. There's actually always been like a little bit of an open question as to whether it's something that is truly mandatory on the Supreme Court, um, that prior chief justices, uh, Chief Justice Roberts and Chief Justice Rehnquist have kind of kept a little bit of an open question, I'm assuming for separation of powers questions, although I'm not 100% sure. Maybe there's a statutory interpretation element of it as well. But regardless, in practice, they have these sort of guidelines. They say oh, all our justices should be disclosing. And most justices, all justices do disclose some stuff year to year. but. This fell through the cracks. Now, other justices have taken extravagant trips, right? Like Justice Scalia died on a similar trip that I don't believe he was paying for uh, to join with a bunch of rich gentlemen uh, at a lodge like in the western United States, right? And that's where he had a heart attack and passed away. Or he was murdered. Or he was, or he was murdered. But we'll, that's the topic for next week. This week, let's assume he was not murdered and he passed away. You know, disinformation Jurassic. That's why that's what we call her. <laughs> and and we've seen other people do things that were a little more above board and kind of notorious, but like could raise similar questions setting aside the disclosure a bit, right? Justice Kennedy famously went to go teach in Europe every summer and would like supposedly always drive to have decisions out before June to make sure he wasn't late to go teach in Italy. I may have the exact details wrong about the country and the timing, but something to that effect for the whole time, the last decade or two he's on the court, Justice Breyer has been, does a lot of similar academic engagements that might include free travel. I strongly suspect they do. So there's all sorts of potential conflict of interest here. Um, disclosure is the one very, very weak mechanism we have for correcting it, right? And so the fact that that super weak requirement wasn't even followed here at such a large scale for half million dollar trips um, over the course of 20 years, that's what's mind kind of boggling about this. I do not read th- Justice Thomas's statement as much of a acquiescence. I th- I read it as the bare minimum he has to do to provide, give anyone you know, some threat on which they can hang to continue to defend his conduct. It, it is, you know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't acknowledge any wrongdoing, it acknowledges maybe a lapse in judgment. I think it's very hard to read a simple lapse in judgment into this sort of behavior for many, many years when you see other justices not doing the same thing, right? And like, you know, is airfare frying on a fr- private jet? Is that hospitality? Like what constitutes hospitality? If you interpret ho- hospitality, like the way Justice Thomas does in this case, A rich person could do anything for you because they own jets and planes and houses and everything becomes personal hospitality, right? They could house you, they could pay for your apartment as long as they own it, that becomes personal hospitality. So fundamentally, he knew he was doing something wrong here. He didn't disclose it for a reason, probably because it'd be publicly embarrassing. And probably he has a little bit of a, hey, I don't really want to deal with this. And I don't like you poking my head in my business sort of way. And justices can do that because there's no enforcement mechanism here. I think the real question is, and this isn't the first time in the last few years we've seen like questions about how much can the judiciary manage itself, right? Like We've seen pretty horrendous stories about judges on the left and the right being really abusive to their law clerks, uh, engaging in a whole range of gross behavior, uh, having lots of other conflicts of interest issues that go largely unaddressed um, or weakly addressed uh, in a lot of cases. And so it raises this question saying like, you know, these are people with lifetime appointments and so the only mechanism to deal with them is really impeachment. Is that enough? Does do we need to try and find some sort of other solution? And if so, is there one even legally available? I'm not 100% sure there is.
0: So I will say the the story about Thomas sort of saying, "Oh, I I thought I didn't have to disclose this, but now I understand I do in part because of this new guidance that came out." It's actually even weirder. The LA Times pointed out that uh, 20 years ago, that same paper reported that Thomas had accepted gifts and plane trips paid for by Harlan Crow uh, because he disclosed them. And then after the LA Times reported that, he stopped disclosing (laughs) these things. So that doesn't look super great. I mean, I look, maybe Justice Thomas could say, oh, I thought I had to report them. Then later I talked to someone and they told me I didn't. So, you know, who knows? But that is, a, a, let's call it a striking detail.
2: Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ Yeah, one other detail I think is worth flagging too that suggests like a little bit of responsibility or culpability broader than Justice Thomas is that, so the Supreme Court updated its ethics guidance on how to apply this reporting obligation like just weeks before the story broke. And if you look at the changes, it is shocking how much they align and specifically address this exact scenario. (laughs) For example, aircraft by millionaires does not count as personal hospitality. I strongly suspect, that people knew this story was going to break. Or maybe the court just became aware of Thomas's or maybe other people's conduct and said, no, we actually need to correct this. Like here, if this is how you think this is interpreting, you're wrong and we're going to adjust it. And so, you know, I think it suggests that this isn't just like one news story breaking now, that there's been a little bit of a bigger dialogue happening behind the scenes about this. Uh, And it hopefully resulted in better guidance that people will actually follow. Hopefully that doesn't mean that this was like a kind of c y a effort on the part of the court to say, "Oh no, in fact, like we're gonna adjust our regs now, knowing these prior lapses have happened i I don't know but but there may be more to the story than appears just on the on the surface
0: yeah i mean i I find the whole thing so dispiriting so as as we've kind of hinted at, Justice Thomas has had this like cutesy line about how he prefers to r v across the country and sleep in the Walmart parking lot rather than going to the beach, which is just a, like a weird and ridiculous thing to say. And this really gives the, the lie to that. But I think that you know more than that, it's been dispiriting, frankly, to see conservative legal commentators respond to it by saying, this is totally fine. People who are upset by it are just out to get Justice Thomas, yada, yada, yada. Quinta, but I'm I'm actually
1: curious, can we, have they been, one one thing that I, you know, one one thing I like to do when, when stuff like this breaks is sort of look at the National Review cover page every six to 12 hours and like see, and, and I don't know, I'm, I'm not seeing a lot of, I mean, who, who, who is defending. You're looking for the Wall
2: Street Journal op-ed page, my friend, Uh. that's the one you need to be (laughs) refreshing. Uh, Oh,
1: well, maybe, I mean, who, 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 and I'm sorry, like who is defending, who is defending Thomas substantively here versus what, what? Does, I think, happen quite a bit, which is that, like, you don't defend the substance. You criticize any overreach of the people who are criticizing the substance.
0: So I don't I don't have, like, the tweets pulled up here. And so I don't want to identify anyone by name in case I'm misremembering precisely what they said. But I absolutely have seen people say, look, you know, this isn't a scandal because Harlan Crow didn't have any business before the court. So why should you care? And I, I just, like... <sighs> Come on, man! Surely we can expect better from the Supreme Court than that. And if you are on the right and you're, you really don't think this is a problem for whatever reason, it, it's beyond me how you can look at this, how, how you can not understand at all that this might affect people's confidence. In the court, as an institution, especially right now, at a time when the judiciary in general and the Supreme Court in particular are really going through a crisis of legitimacy, in part because of Thomas's failure to recuse in in other matters related to Ginny Thomas's involvement in the insurrection.
2: Let me read this: the top, the first sentence, or I guess technically three sentences of the Wall Street Journal's leading editorial off its op-ed page from the seventh. So, what five days ago, right after the story broke. The left's assault on the Supreme Court is continuing, and the latest front is the news that Justice Clarence Thomas has a rich friend who has hosted the justice on his private plane, his yacht, and his vacation resort. That's it. That's the story. Okay. Well, that's that's not good.
0: They also <laughs> got mad that uh, ProPublica used adjectives and uh, descriptive yes, nouns, for example, right. that they yes. called it a, a mega yacht instead of like, I don't know what they wanted to call it, a rowboat. It's really bizarre <laughs> criticism.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I, 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 I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna do my, my role, which is to pathologically do a little bit of both sizing because I just can't help myself. I mean, one, there's no question that this is bad behavior from Justice Thomas. And there's no question that people who are holding his water are like, that's, that's, that's crazy. Um, and unsupportable. I mean, I will say, I, I do think that for partisans, th- there's something like the Supreme Court becomes like a really blind spot and, and, You know, because I I just think that the justices are such heroes to their respective ideological corners. I mean, I I think people who are not conservative do not appreciate how lionized Justice Thomas is. I think even more so than Justice Scalia was for, you know, the holding alight the fire of principled conservative thought. And, you know, when you think that you are in sort of like a death battle with, you know, the other side, um, it becomes very tempting to 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 think this way. And, you know, I, I do think the left is not immune to that as well. I mean, I, I think when Revelations came out at just how close the relationship was between you know, high-level journalists like Nina Totenberg and, you know, the late Justice you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg – there was plenty of criticism on the left of that, but I don't think that actually there was. I think a lot of people tried to sort of minimize that as well. And frankly, I think that that is just as much. of, I, frankly, I think this is one of the biggest scandals um, of the last twenty years in the Supreme Court. Um, that that relationship and and you know how that reporting uh, was affected by it. So I, all I'm trying to say is, you know, I really do think that the the culture war embedding of the court does make it very hard. To think rationally about these scandals when they come for your side, and also makes you pessimistic that Congress will find any sort of bipartisan ability to respond,
0: I mean, look, I will start by saying I think that the Nina Totenberg uh, RBG relationship is deeply troubling, and kind of I have a lot of questions about how NPR handled that. This is in a different category. Right, like it there I have plenty of quibbles about how various justices r b g among them, you know maybe even chief on the on the sort of left block have handled things, but like getting a five hundred thousand dollar vacation comped by your rich friend using his private jet to just like tootle around the globe and not disclosing it, i just I, this strikes me as something of a different magnitude, and I will also say that. Yes, the court has become sort of sunken in partisan politics, but that's in part because of relationships like this one. If you wanted to get out of that space, you would not engage in these kinds of actions.
1: So I I come across really really quickly and, and I, I I don't like well, don't relitigate the the Totenberg RBG thing. I think we both agree that like it's a problem. I mean I I do think though it's worth staying on this question of like which is worse, not because we have to play like whose flesh wound is grosser. Um, but no, but because I think it does, I think it does illuminate what the nature of the problem is, right? From the the, the problem, I think, of the Thomas accepting these gifts and not disclosing them um, is that it supports a narrative, quite possibly correct narrative, that conservative judges, conservative justices are just really embedded in this, you know, right-wing business politico complex, right? And, and that the scandal... And the institutional effect of that is to you know, harm the legitimacy of the court, as you just pointed out. I, I think what folks on the left sometimes don't appreciate about why the Totenberg RBG thing was so bad was because it feeds into the exact version of this that the right has, which is that the media is, you know, and the kind of cultural institutions are holding water for the sort of left side of of the uh of the debate. And so the reason I mention this is because. You know, the question of which is worse, I mean, I think the question is if the question is which is worse for the legitimacy of the court. Yeah, if if you're on like the left slash center left, which is most of us, then yeah, the Thomas thing is worse. But I think we have a blind spot for how things that we think are less bad on the left can actually have a similar effect on the right. And like look, look, look if, if if your argument's based on the legitimacy of the court and the public, what's good for the goose has to be good for the gander.
0: I, I agree. If if when there's reporting that, you know, Justice Breyer routinely accepted $500,000 vacations from his friends. I will be scandalized as well.
2: At the risk of slipping into too much same sideism because I, you know, there's a classic argument where you say you can both acknowledge parallels without having to accept the similarity in scale and consequences. That's the nature of, of when there are always two sides of an argument, that's always the, the nature of it. You know, what I will say is is unique here, I think, is that is who Harlan Crowe is really matters, right? Because he's somebody who funded a lot of interest. Now, it's actually a muddier picture than a lot of people are assuming on Twitter, right? Like Harlan Crowe is a very prominent, primarily conventional conservative kind of anti-Trump fundraiser. Most of his money goes to PACs that are very much in the kind of the conventional conservative wing. Uh, I believe he's giving money to an anti-Trump PAC, super PAC specifically. This is what people, journalists, have put together from his kind of donation trail. He's given a lot of money to like Paul Ryan back in the day, a bunch of people who ran against Trump, Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, not Trump himself, um, which enters into the equation of saying, well, does Thomas have a conflict of interest over January 6 related uh, litigation, right? Where you're saying, well, he didn't back Trump, so maybe he doesn't feel that great about January 6th. But it's also not as clean a picture the other way either, because of course, you know, Ted Cruz was one of the people who rejected the legitimacy of the 2020 election results, Right. And so does his relationship with Ted Cruz create a conflict of interest? I think the key point here is that when you have ethics rules, the guideline is not that you have an ethical conflict. It's that if you have the appearance of an ethical conflict, you'd be a complete idiot to think you don't have the appearance of an ethical conflict here. I'm sorry. For somebody who is giving tons of money very openly to political candidates Many of whom are closely tied to people actively litigating before the court. And this is a problem for people who are big political donors of any stripe, right? Because your interest as a political donor doesn't just extend to things for which you have standing to sue over. But that's not what a conflict of interest requires, right? Like I may not have standing to sue over an issue, but if I have an interest in it and I give money to a judge about the results uh, or in a way that may be perceived as influencing the results, that's still a conflict of interest, right? Like I may still have interest in the matter. And so, clarity on this helps. Like, you know, maybe there is some fuzziness against the rules here, but I think it's a real hard argument to make that this was somehow fell within that fuzzy zone about how the regs are applied. I'm also very curious whether Harlan Crowe actually did give money to any of the variety of groups litigating over a 2020 election in matters that ultimately found themselves before the court. I'm kind of have a hard time believing he did it, given how prolifically the guy gives money to different causes, many of which are totally legitimate. And I don't have an issue with uh, fundamentally. I'll also say, like, You know, we have to be able to accept this judgment without just demonizing Clarence Thomas. Like, Clarence Thomas is a guy who I don't agree with on a lot. I also don't think he's the, you know, there's this caricature of him as somebody who is just a complete partisan kind of shooting out results to favor whatever his ideological preference is from a partisan perspective. I don't think that's true either. Like, I don't think he's just, you know, Jenny Thomas's uh, puppet advancing her political causes. The guy, like, clearly has very deeply held legal principles that he rules on often in ways that are very contrary to the rest of the conservatives on the court and to the dominant view among of in the conservative movement, like at standing doctrine is the one that I'm most familiar with. Right. That's just one of a number of areas where Thomas has like a very unique view that he sticks to really, you know, in a very principled way in his guns. That doesn't mean that he doesn't have ethical lapses. It doesn't mean that he is always principled. It doesn't mean that he is, you know, a white knight either, but it's a complicated picture and you can't like let your resistance to moral judgments about somebody you may not agree with obscure the fact that there's clearly a major lapse in judgment a merely major questionable behavior here and that's before we even get to the Nazi stuff which I do think we should touch on briefly
1: so yeah i i'll 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 do it I'll talk about Nazis so I gotta say the the Nazi napkin side plot and we should just clarify what it is so uh Harlan crow like I guess many billionaires rich people has like too much money to know what to do with so apparently he just like collects crap and he has like a large collection of I don't know crap from around the world and like political stuff and busts of things. And, and, and apparently as part of that, he has some, uh, Th- third Reich memorabilia. He has a signed copy of Mein Kampf. Uh, he has, um, a, uh, like a, some napkins, some linens like with swastikas embroidered on them, which is, I guess if you were a, you know, if you were a fashionable person in 1939, that's what you used. I think it, there's like a portrait of Hitler somewhere. And, you know, some parts of the, the media, and, 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 you know sort of not just like, sort of like pure left wing publications, but, you know, sort of the, the kind of mainstream media has like really run with this as like, could you like, not, this is not just, you know, Justice Thomas is palling around with a, you know, right wing billionaire, but like a Nazi and therefore he's a Nazi and Justice Thomas is a Nazi. And I have to say, this to me is one of the dumbest things that I have like streams that I have read in such a long time. Like, who cares if, as part of his giant collection of crap, there's some stuff from the Third Reich, which, of course, was like an important 20th century political moment. And and what what I find annoying about this is not because like I care about Harlan Crow's feelings, but it's because this is so stupid, and it's so obviously so, and it's so lazy that it. First of all, I just like I think you should not be intellectually lazy. I think that's just a vice and is offensive. But on a more practical level, it's this sort of crap, right? That overshadows the merits of the case, which is that Thomas is behaving with a just contemptible lack of judgment. And, and that people who should know better are not being disciplined enough to not push this distraction because it's like fun to get the likes on Twitter, but it's exactly the sort of thing that on the right, right, makes it so easy to discredit and to write the like ridiculous Wall Street Journal op-ed. And I wanna be very, very clear, right? In the absence of this, the right would be doing everything it could to uh, tamp down on this scandal and to explain it away. But why are you making it easier for them? It, it stuff like this makes me just like apoplectically mad.
0: I don't know, man. I think it's weird to collect Hitler's personal teapot. That's a weird. It is a weird and creepy thing to do. Is it the most important part of the story? No. Is it weird and creepy and off-putting? Yes.
2: I agree with. I I agree with that sentiment to some extent although I will say rich people are just freaking weird man because you get too much money you don't know what to do with it and they all end up doing weird weird things what few mega rich people I've interacted with my life it's very few have weird weird hobbies hopefully they channel it into like public charity weirdness meaning we all get to benefit in some way but like a lot of them don't and so i i you know i i hesitate to ascribe any more motivation to this because buying hitler's teapot could have been the same as like buying a pack of gum for some of these people no matter how much it cost at tiffany's and and, and also where where do you think museum collections come from like the vast majority of crap donate yeah, so
1: donated is stuff, to a
0: museum yeah that's what they all do after they die like that's how this all no. works. I don't know, man. I don't want that stuff in my house.
2: I think the key point here is is there's legitimate space to criticize having a collection. It sounds like it's not presented the most sensitive way. It sounds like some people who are like at a kind of like political centrist fundraiser he held at his house a year or two ago or summit were not warned that there's a bunch of Nazi artifacts around and found them and were very upset. I get that. Like, that's fine. That's a legitimate reaction. I probably would not hold, you know, my wedding reception at his house with a bunch of Nazi stuff everywhere. That's great. But what I will say is the problem is when we put it into sentences like Clarence Thomas accepts donations from Nazi sympathizer, which is like what you see a lot of people tweeting and becomes the easiest stalking horse to respond to for the reasons Alan's noted. That's why it becomes self defeating. For people to really like tie this all together, not to mention the just incredibly annoying moral righteousness that comes out anytime anyone can call someone they disagree with a Nazi and the relish with which they pursue it. So I tend to agree with Alan that I think it is an unfortunate and really, really regrettable distraction, even though I will also agree with Quinta that there's legitimate grounds on which you can criticize Harlan Crowe's collection habits. Then again, you've never seen my magic card collection. It is grotesque. So maybe that's on me.
1: Also, obviously,
2: if, if any of our
1: listeners has some like, you know, first rate um, Third Reich or Soviet or, you know, Khmer Rouge teapots uh, or artifacts, you should obviously send them to the Brookings Institution, care of Quinta Jurassic, uh, because we'll be starting our collection.
0: Thanks. Thanks for that. <laughs> Um well, speaking of brutal genocidal dictators, uh Chinese President Xi Jinping had the honor recently of meeting with French President Emmanuel Macron, who uh, went on a trip to China. Um, and apparently greatly annoyed she by talking for uh, a enormous amount of time at their joint press conference, which I find extremely funny. But Macron, what the reason that we're we're talking about this is that Macron made some comments to a reporter, I believe, while he was there on his way back, uh, that sort of called into question uh his commitment or Europe's commitment to Taiwan, saying that Europe should not be just America's followers. That's a quote. Um, and said, "Quote: The question Europeans need to answer is: it In our interest to accelerate a crisis on Taiwan? No. The worst thing would be to think that we Europeans must become followers on this topic and take our cue from the U.S. agenda and a Chinese overreaction." Uh, This sparked a great deal of news coverage as everyone kind of took a step back and said, what is happening? Um, And I I do think that it is worth flagging that uh, right before we started recording, Macron made a statement saying that uh, France supports the status quo in Taiwan. Uh, so make of that what you will. It's also worth noting that in this political interview that caused all of this hubbub to begin with, there is a very interesting editor's note at the bottom that essentially says uh, the French president's office insisted on checking the quotes to be published uh, as a condition of granting the interview, which is apparently common in France, which is kind of wild by American journalistic standards. And uh, the Politico says, you know, we we resisted this, but we ultimately accepted it as a condition of the interview, yada, yada. And then at the end says, um, the quotes in this article are all said by the president, but some parts of the interview in which the president spoke even more frankly about Taiwan and Europe's strategic autonomy were cut out by the Elysee. So who knows what else he might have said. Scott, I want to turn to you first. What do you make of this little Michigas?
2: Yeah, so I think there's two different... Background facts we need to be aware of to fully understand what's happening here. I think, although I'm not a Macron expert, so you know I, I welcome correction from others. Um, the first is that it, the Indo-Pacific has been a focus of Macron's presidency for years. Uh, actually, it's one of his signature foreign policy issues, and that's because while a lot of people don't think of it this way, France is actually a significant Pacific power. It has still a bunch of island holdings that are archipelagos and that have a control a substantial swath of. Uh, The exclusive economic zones, which means those kind of territorial areas around controlled land territory where you can exercise a variety of economic rights like uh, fishing, offshore mining, things like that. These are all kind of in remote corners. They're less strategically significant than, you know, the areas around Taiwan, China, Japan, uh, Korea, the Southeast Asia that tend to be the focus of like a lot of maritime disputes and the focus of a a lot of Western US attention in particular, but they're still substantial. And so Macron gave a speech in 2017 or 2018 where he really laid out an independent Indo-Pacific bringing in the Indian Ocean where uh, France also has substantial kind of small island holdings and maritime EEZs. To unify them in a strategy that was a reaction to the in rapid acceleration of hostilities between the United States and China under former President Trump, which was focused on a very aggressive stance by the Trump administration and calling out China, being openly hostile towards China on a bunch of fronts, and Macron kind of carved out this independent strategy to try and be a counterweight to that, not. Adopting a different tack on Taiwan, Taiwan, you know, the United States and Europe have generally most of Europe, a lot of the international community has generally been on the same page on basically saying we like the status quo. We don't want to see it resolved by force. The parties need to negotiate this. It shouldn't be resolved by military conflict. Right. But in spite of that, they were concerned about the United States escalating in different ways inadvertently or intentionally with China in the Pacific. And they wanted to kind of carve a third route. A part of that was a growing relationship with Australia over the purchase of French submarines that they're going to develop together. Um, that's the deal that fell apart when the U- Australia instead joined with the UK and the US and what became the AUKUS agreement in 2021, which was one of the first topics we talked about in the podcast. So It gives me great joy uh, to be able to talk about it again. We saw Australia pull out of that, instead join up with the UK and US in manufacturing nuclear submarines um, in what was seen as actually a huge slight to Macron and Macron's government in a way that I don't think a lot of people outside of France fully understood because it was undermining a pillar of a key element of Macron's global vision and global strategy. We saw that story, even though there's been a real effort to kind of iron things over with Macron, make things better, the Biden administration, you know, made a strong diplomatic effort invited Macron for one of the first, I think maybe the first state dinners the Biden administration held in, I think, early 2022, late 2021, after the AUKUS event, like really has tried to put on a charm offensive. Um, Nonetheless, we saw the big unveiling of kind of the AUKUS plan finally come to fruition in the last few weeks. From my understanding, that has gotten a fair amount of play in the French media and probably has Macron kind of on tilt a little bit because it's resurrecting what is a painful political moment for him. And Macron steps in to have this conversation with Xi Jinping over the last few days, which is a role we've seen him play before with Putin with others, where he tries to be, while part of the Western alliance in many ways, a conduit for a little more conversation than others might have. And so coming off of that, I think the combination of kind of peak over the memories of AUKUS, the fact that there still is this desire to concern about the United States taking a much more aggressive stance in China than France thinks is wise and thinks Europe should think is wise, behind these statements, it kind of makes sense where he's coming from. And I think the biggest oversight here was that his staff, who at least according to some accounts I've seen, I don't know if this is true, supposedly even had like last sign-off rights on the piece that ran in the French media and failed to insist an express caveat was included that says we still stand by our Taiwan policy, which is that it shouldn't be resolved by force, which seems like the biggest kind of oversight here. Fundamentally, it's, it's not inconsistent with Macron's done before. It just it comes at a weird moment for the international community in the context of Ukraine and in the context of concerns about China. And it appears to have struck a, a very awkward note for other European countries. Um, so that's the kind of context I think we have to bring to this.
1: Yeah, so I, I have two thoughts. So the, the first thought is that I too, like Scott, love whenever we get to talk about AUKUS for many reasons, but mostly because I get to relive what I still think is Scott's absolute high point of pun artistry on the show, which was the segment titled The Hunt for Bread October, which God still makes me laugh. Um the, the second point is, look, I will admit to being a little surprised at how much airtime this is getting because it's like a Gaullist politician is going to be Gaullist. Like, it's just not like, is it that surprising that um, a French president who clearly styles himself in like the, the, the proud tradition of Charles de Gaulle is gonna like say slightly nasty things about the Western alliance. And like, frankly, relative to what previous French presidents have said is pretty small potatoes. I, I just feel like we're really taking, like, we're really blowing this out of proportion. I, again, I, 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 that's not to, that's not to, say anything about the merits of whatever is in Macron's heart as to the actual substantive issue around Taiwan. But to be perfectly honest, it strikes me that he personally, France culturally, and Europe hopefully- Understands that it should just it should not actually be an appendage of US foreign policy. That's actually not good for anyone. That's not good for Europe. It's also not good for the US, um, because we do need Europe to, you know, like put on the big boy pants and and run its own military and foreign policy and pay for it and like all, all all that all that sort of stuff. So, you know, if that requires French politicians to say, I'm not going to my room because you told me to. I'm going because I want to go to my room. Like, that's totally fine. I don't think there's any reason to think that, you know, when the proverbial, you know, shit hits the fan over the Taiwan Strait, um, France is not going to be like... In lockstep doing whatever the West ultimately, which is to say whatever the United States ultimately decides to do, um, you know, they're going to do it in their French way, which is sometimes a little annoying because they kind of demand to be, frankly, treated with uh, more influence than their geopolitical position, to be perfectly frank, entitles them to. But like in the grand scheme of things. Uh I, I am I am puzzled at the uh at the at the big dealness of, of all of this. And and if anything, I feel like it's just it's just feeding into what I think Macron ultimately wants, um, rightly or wrongly, and it's fine, whatever, which is which is, you know, more column inches devoted to you know France's important global role, which like again, it's just
2: France. So, Alan, I I hear what you're saying, and and I and I think that's right. But I do think this hits a sensitive moment on on two different fronts. One, there is an ever underlying question about how much support there would be if the United States were to come to Taiwan support. Remember the United States hasn't actually committed to come to Taiwan support in the event of a Chinese attack. That's that's the strategic <laughs> ambiguity position that President Biden has wandered away from on occasion. So what's
1: everyone complaining about with Macron? Like that 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 makes it even weirder to like
2: big b- bitch and moan when like we're not actually well, more forward-leaning than Macron is officially. It is it is a little strange, but there's there's this idea always that the vo- the vocalness of these rhetorical support for continued Taiwanese autonomy will help deter China from having to, preventing from other countries having to make the decision of encountering the situation, what happens if China actually attacks, uh, and that there's an idea that you're weakening that here. But the bigger driver is, I think, Ukraine. Like, the United States and Europe have been in lockstep on this, more or less, around Europe and Ukraine, and people draw these parallels. And it appears to be this weakening in European resolve to stick by the United States, I tend to agree it's overstated because I don't think it extends to Ukraine very clearly. France is the one country that's or one of relatively few European countries that is like seriously stepping up its military spending in a way that gets close to meeting U.S. requests that have been outstanding for years um, and has been for many years. It's kind of like one of the better models of that in Europe, as I recall. And so, you know... I think there's a lot to be said, like, like actually a lot of this is not inconsistent with U.S. interests, for, if for no other reason also that it's good to have conduits to China. And when we are blowing up our ability to engage in diplomatic relations over things like balloons flying into our territory, it's good to have allies, even if sometimes, uh, you know, fair weather allies like like France. I think that's overstating it. We're, just, we're still very strong allies with France be able to play an interlocutory role in a credible way, in a way that Xi Jinping sounds credible. So Ned, I'm not surprised to see this reaction, but Ned, I, I agree, I don't think it's a problem. I actually think it's probably a good thing for the United States and for the international community more generally that uh, Macron is keeping these channels open, although a little more clarity on the Taiwan position is warranted. Well, folks, we will have to end the conversation there for this week, but this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to ponder over in the week to come. Quinta, what do you have for us this week?
0: I have a very useful Substack post. This is a Substack by, I'm no word, I'm going to mispronounce his last name, so apologies in advance, Uh, Adam Unikowski or possibly Unikowski. The Substack is called Adam's Legal Newsletter. Um, I do not know Mr. Unikowski, but I would like to congratulate him on... What I think has been the most useful walkthrough I have seen of uh, Judge Matthew Kaczmarek's decision staying, you can't see my air quotes, um, the FDA's approval of mifepristone, which is used for medication abortions. Um, there's been a lot of sound and fury. Well, that's not really fair. There's been a lot of fury uh, over, justified fury over Judge Kasmerick's opinion, which is pretty Wacky, but I am someone who did not have time to follow the case closely and was just looking for a really careful rundown of essentially everything wrong with the opinion. And this, uh, Substack post really provided it in exactly the level of detail that I was looking for. It's also very useful because you can see the, the writer Utakowski sort of slowly lose his sanity as he delves into the depths of Kismarik's opinion to the point where he's using, uh, Four exclamation points by the end of the post, so I I recommend it if you like me are trying to get your head around exactly what happened here and why it was legally screwy. That's a technical term.
1: Yeah, no, it is that. It, I I will second that. It is an excellent post, and and just just to add like thing, I mean one of the thing I like about it is you know first of all the 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 author he's he's like a scalia former scalia clerk like he, he is not a left winger um at, at all and, and so that's a useful perspective and and there's there is i mean d- d- despite the slowly becoming more unhinged over the course of the the post but in like a really professional and good way there still is a kind of a uh, more in sadness than in anger quality he's just like really upset for the law and like again that's like a nice perspective to read um it is a bananas opinion i mean it's a little bit out of obviously it's kind of out of the law lane but uh you know i i i think it's uh it's uh we're 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 in uh Judge Cannon territory with with this one. It's a uh, it's real bad. Um, so my object lesson is a very entertaining article from a couple of weeks ago, published in uh, New York Magazine by Paul Murray, who spent a couple of months exploring the metaverse. Which those of you who may have forgotten, because it's the maybe biggest flop in tech history, is the like multi billion dollar investment that Meta, formerly Facebook, uh, is making in uh, having us all wear uncomfortable VR glasses and lose our bottom halves uh, while we uh, engage in very desultory conversation in a cartoon hellscape. Uh, And yeah, it's about as good as it sounds. The piece is delightful. It has a kind of like kind of gonzo journalist quality to it which is just very entertaining Though at the same time being in its own way kind of a moving portrayal of some of the participants in the metaverse it's just really very good um if you can listen to the piece i recommend it i actually listened to the piece on uh autumn and like there's something just about like the the reader does such a good job and it's the sort of like really fun piece that actually i think is almost better listened to rather than read um but it is fabulous um and just a great piece of journalism and uh Man, the
2: metaverse is it's bad. <laughs> We're assuming they got rid of the lower half so they didn't have to deal with all the sex stuff, right? <laughs> I'm guessing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think so, but they did say that legs were coming soon, yeah,
2: no it's like oh, it's, a, it's like it's a technical issue, right because
1: because like the 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 VR glasses they have cameras that can sort of see your top half and therefore reconstruct your your leg and torso is easy, but the legs are like it is a legitimately hard technical challenge. It's just and like I, I honestly I think it's it's not the absence of legs that is the real problem. It's just somehow become you know <laughs> like symbolic of just the, just the crapness of the whole experience.
2: I like that it's like basically the equivalent of making it really hard to draw hands which is like cartoonists <laughs> yeah. always have like, you know, their figures holding hands things. Hands are hard to draw. Yeah. AI, unlike the metaverse, is getting better at a double exponential rate, whereas that metaverse still kind of sucks. There we go. Well, for my object lesson this week, I am pulling an audible because I discovered something not five minutes before we started filming that I think is phenomenal. And I don't know how long it's going to be up here, uh, particularly if I start advertising it. So uh, get on it fast, listeners. Um there is, I think folks have probably, we've talked about on the podcast before, the filmmaker Errol Morris. I know Quinta has mentioned a few his, po- his documentaries before, my favorite documentarians. Uh, Alan is nodding in a way that I suspect he likes him as well. Very intriguing, Thin Blue Line, Fog of War, lots of great documentaries he's made over the years. Um, he had an amazing television series in like, I don't want to say like the first half of the 2000s. I want to say on Showtime, I might have the details wrong, called First Person, which was basically a series of like 30 to hour long documentary interviews usually with a single subject about a variety of topics using his intertron, which is this kind of setup he has where he recreates a first person one-on-one sort of vibe while asking questions from afar with a weird awkward errol morris echo which is like one of his signature moves um but there it's a phenomenal series that to watch 10 years ago when i became aware of it i had to buy an exorbitantly expensive dvd box set off of ebay or something or from like a used list on amazon and i happened to be talking about it with Noam, our uh, producer, before his show started, and just happened to Google it. And somebody named at Errol Morris 1866 on YouTube, I don't know if that's actually Errol Morris or not posted the entire series two years ago. And so you can watch it now for free on YouTube. So I am making that my object lesson. Check it out sooner rather than later in case it goes away. But it is a really, really phenomenally interesting set of interviews and documentary series. It looks like the whole series is here. I could be wrong, but I think so. These are all the ones I remember anyway, but definitely worth checking out. Uh, and I hope you enjoy Well, folks, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare, so be sure to visit lawfareblog.com for our show page with links to past episodes, for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors, and for information on Lawfare's other phenomenal podcast series. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter at RETL Security, and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. In addition... Sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon at patreon.com lawfare for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week is Noam Masband of Goat Rodeo and our music as always was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Patcha Howell. On behalf of my co-host Alan and Quinta, I am Scott R. Anderson and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye.